I might have been more of a believer around we were going to get, get to 100% EV. But, you know, at this point, dealers aren't going anywhere. I don't think that we're going to get to 100% EVs, not in my lifetime. And, um, you know, we, like I said earlier, I, I don't think that the use case for human autonomy at level five is ever going to happen. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Before we start, I need your help to grow the Car Dealership Guy community. Please take a second to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating below so that more people can benefit from this content. All right, let's get into today's show. Steve Greenfield is founder and CEO of Automotive Ventures, an early stage auto technology and mobility VC fund that helps entrepreneurs raise growth capital and accelerate their businesses. Steve previously served as TrueCar's Senior VP of Strategy and Business Development and AutoTrader's VP of Product Management and Business Development, where he oversaw the acquisitions of V-Auto, Kelly Blue Book, HomeNet Automotive, Vin Solutions, and Dealer Science. In this conversation, we talk about how will the car buying experience change for consumers in five to 10 years? Are smaller dealerships at risk of extinction? Will auto manufacturers go direct to consumer like Tesla? The most compelling investment opportunities in the EV space, the main trends that Automotive Ventures is focused on, and everything as a service. Will you really have to subscribe to your car's heated seats? Here's my conversation with Steve Greenfield. All views of Car Dealership Guy and any guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Car Dealership Guy or any guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Steve. Great to have you here. Let's get started. So I think the where I want to start is the car business has changed a lot over the last five to 10 years. And especially since COVID, there's been this acceleration of technology uh, in the industry. But from your perspective, what will car buying look like in 10 years for consumers? Yeah, it's, it's a good question and a hard question. You know, I've been now doing this for like 23 years. And, you know, at the beginning of the Internet, you know, the, the salesperson was going to get disrupted. All cars were going to sell online. It was going to be very, very much the Amazon-esque sort of like experience that one would expect with digitization. But, you know, and then Carvana here this last year, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit today as well. But, you know, that was a great experiment, you know, and I think for, for no lack of demand, but, you know, the unit economics never could make sense, right? Um, from taking the inventory risk to all, all the logistics of the vehicle, et cetera. But um, never mind the technology and then the, the sheer cost of getting getting audience. But you know, I, I think to answer your question, I think the best example um, that we're seeing real time is CarMax, right? Because CarMax now now does offer an omni-channel experience in, in their words, so the consumer can opt for driveway delivery if they if they want or curbside pickup. And you know, you, you read those earnings call transcripts, and um, you know they, they say that only twelve percent as of this last quarter, twelve percent of consumers are demanding sort of like this this either curbside and or home delivery. So I think, you know, we can only meet the consumer where, where they want to be met. And I, I, you know, I don't think that 10 years from now, we're going to be 100% um, online driveway delivery, et cetera. Despite the fact, you know, there will be other Carmanas that pop up. And, you know, you, you see what Lithia is doing with their rebranding to driveway.com and wanting to have this national presence. I think the 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 the, um, the interest is there to provide the consumer with a better buying experience. But I think you know, fast forward ten years, we're going to see still see the majority of vehicles transacting face to face at dealerships, and you know there'll be a lot of technology that enables transparency up front and negotiation up front. But I think that the physical handoff of the vehicle and and some of the negotiation for for the majority of transactions will still be at the dealership. So, but you said something interesting. You said, you said Carvana was a nice experiment past tense. Like explain that to me. Clearly Carvana's market cap has gotten decimated, but like you, you also mentioned that consumer demand is still there. So 
Do you think that it's just the business model structurally did not work, but the consumer experience sticks around and um, dissipates throughout all the dealerships? Or do you think it's just altogether that type of consumer experience is just not sustainable? No, I, I think kudos to the Carvana team. They, 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 they prove that there is demand for that kind of experience, right? I mean, it was always intuitive that an Amazon-esque experience for car buying you know, would get support from consumers. I mean, um, that seems very intuitive, but someone needed to prove that, and the Carvana guys were able to prove that. I think that the unit economics, other than that one quarter where they were profitable, where cars were, you know, for the first time in the history of automotive, cars were actually appreciating the longer you held onto them. Um, that, that, that boded well for that one quarter. But beyond that, I think it's really, really um, ha has proven to be for them a very challenging model to make the unit economics work. It, it would be different, you know, if they didn't have to spend $400 million plus per year in marketing. If you could bulk that experience onto somebody who's already got consumer eyeballs, a la Amazon, a la Walmart, it would be totally different. And you might be able to prove out positive unit economics very quickly. But, you know, just the sheer cost of generating that audience on the front end and then the incremental cost of the, all the logistics to get the car to people's driveways on the back end, I think just like was really, really challenging them for them to prove out positive unit economics. But but why has it been so difficult to change the car buying process? Right. Or like on one hand, I tell myself, OK, it's the, the car buying process is, you know, as, as a dealer, it still works and it seems like, or at least people online have very different perspectives from customers walking into the showroom. On the other hand, you know, um, the business and, you know, you look at, uh, you look at ratings and polls and whatnot, you know, used car salesmen are consistently ranked pretty low on, you know, trustworthiness and stuff like that. Not as bad as politicians, but it's, it's still pretty low, relatively speaking to other industries. And so, you know, what is it that, that's just been so difficult about changing the car buying process, or at least the perception for consumers. Do you think it's just a stigma that's stuck around and it's been you know tough to shake off? Does the does the car dealership business need to rebrand, or what is it? Well, in some ways, but I mean, the, the, the challenge is one: it's a very large purchase. Number two is, I mean, there aren't very many product categories left now where you negotiate, and especially with large purchases. Like, what's left? Mattresses furniture and then like if you if you're smart enough jewelry right when you go buy jewelry you can negotiate even mattresses jewelry, right? i mean yeah you can just buy them direct to consumer no. but the thing i mean if, you, if you're buying a casper mattress or any of these other direct to consumer brands you're not negotiating any longer so i mean i, I think and, and you know furniture if you're buying on amazon obviously you're not negotiating any longer so i think we are migrating away from and amazon has 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 trained the next generation of, of shoppers not to negotiate right in, in fact if anything price transparency and, and ensuring, uh, feeling confident you've got the lowest price is really hard on the Amazon experience. They do that deliberately, right? It's really hard to get on and buy a product and be, be convinced that you've gotten the lowest price because there's no way to sort low to high like you used to be able to do on eBay. Um, and you know, it's very convoluted. So I, I think that um, given that it's a, it's a high price good, uh, purchasing is infrequent. Uh, there still is discounting both on new and on used. I think, um, and, and there's the uncertainty you know, you, you know this better than me, but the uncertainty around whether I will get financed and whether I will be eligible for the incentives that I see online all means that you almost have to go in and talk face to face. I mean, if I'm a super prime buyer and I don't want to negotiate and I'm willing to pay MSRP, it's actually pretty easy to buy online. 
But if I'm not a super prime buyer and I don't know exactly which configuration of car that I want, and I'm not certain if I'm going to get financed and I'm eligible for incentives, I almost have to go into the dealership. So I think until such time as we say every car shall sell at MSRP and or every used car, there's absolutely no negotiation. And we're very clear, hey, if you've got this credit score, you're going to qualify for this bank at this rate. And here's going to here, here's your, your payment. And you can see what the FTC is trying to do. I mean, they're signaling, let's try to force the industry through regulation to get there and be transparent online with what the out-the-door price is. And by the way, you know, commit to what the pricing is for F&I products ahead of time. Well, that's a little utopian. I don't, I don't think they're Why? gonna be able to... Well, how on earth, because, well, listen, you know, you finance customers every day, correct? Yep. When, when a customer walks in, even if they've already done their, got, got their credit score, and they're certain that they're gonna get a certain rate, how often, are they actually eligible for the rate they think they're eligible for? Not very often. And the reason for that is because the, the different parts of the business are still so fragmented or, you know, like they're, they're just disconnected, the lenders and the dealers and the F&I products. I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the things that Carvana did achieve, which is vertically integrating um, that entire vertically integrating, you know, the different parts that make up the car business and then connecting them through technology. Um, and other dealers have done it as well. You know, like you've seen Alithia do it. Um, you know, there's just other companies that have managed to do that, but it obviously takes a lot of money. It's, you know, big upfront spend in order to provide that experience. So yeah, I, I do agree with you that where there's a lot of upstarts and, you know, startups that are trying to make that the norm for dealers, but it's been very difficult. You know, I've, I've tried for a very long time to get all these systems to talk. Um, and it's just, it's really, really tough as a dealer. And, and I consider myself pretty tech savvy. Um, so I can only imagine dealers that are less tech savvy or don't have internet or, or technology departments. It's probably even tougher. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's dwell there for a minute, right? So if you have the scale, if you're Carvana, CarMax, Lithia, and you have the scale to effectively have your own bank, you write the paper and have your own F&I company where you approve and you can, you know, there's no uncertainty around whether a consumer is eligible, what the pricing is for this particular VIN or customer, then yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. But then, you know, you are thinking about a future where there's going to be huge scale economies and, 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 the, and the, the giants of the industry are going to win because they're the ones that are going to be able to provide this tight integration and this much more seamless consumer experience. And, and maybe the vision is that, you know, there are going to be a few dominant, huge national brands, a la Driveway, CarMax, Carvana, or whoever like replaces Carvana. And then, you know, that's it. And then, you know, the, the average dealer is going to have a hard time unless they carve out this like niche in their local market where they're differentiated in the minds of the consumer, a hard time ever competing online because of all the disparate systems you said that are really, really hard to stitch together unless you effectively own those disparate systems. So that's a perfect segue because you know I wanted to ask you what happens to small dealerships or dealer groups over the next five to ten years? Do you think they can compete? It sounds like based on what you just said, it's unlikely. Uh, but clearly, you know, you run automotive ventures. You're bullish on the dealership model and innovation with the dealership model. So can you talk us through that? Yeah. So, so I, I think you know a, a lot of dealer owners are wrestling with this right now. You know, given that valuations are higher than they've ever been, is this the right time to get out with all this uncertainty? And, and some are taking the opportunity to do that. Like with all the headwinds on the horizon and uncertainty, it's time to get out and put some money in the bank. 
But, you know, I, I think that the dealers that I talk to that have like a, a good solid plan or like there, there's defensibility about having a good geographical concentration. Like there are dealer groups that have 15 stores in one or two cities where they've got, you know, good, good um, uh, representation of a bunch of different popular brands. And then they can harmonize the technology stack, promote that family's brand or whatever that brand is locally and, and build up defensibility, at least within that one city. It doesn't do anything for what we just talked about, like, you know, allowing them to own their own bank and own their own finance products, et cetera. But, you know, at least the scale economics of negotiating down the rate on F&I products, et cetera, um, the simplification of going to, you know, one uniform tech stack behind the scenes for reporting purposes, et cetera. And, um, and at least they get that geographical defensibility. But I think that the, the single mom and pop stores, right, as they say, are going to have an increasingly hard time differentiating. And especially with everything that's going on with, you know, OEMs in many cases on the new side, moving more towards like a, an agency model or some hybrid of an agency model. If, if tell us more about that. Only, yeah, tell us more about yeah, this, this agency model. Yeah, ha happy to. I mean, this is, you know, an area that I try to keep up on, although it's changing weekly. So if you, if you look at the the friction, there's, you know, as far as I, I'm concerned, you know, I've been 23 years in the industry. There's always been friction between an OEM and, and you mean dealer. a car manufacturer, just saying for the audience, the car, the car, automakers, correct? Yeah, the automaker and their franchise dealers, and there's always been friction, right? Be it, you know, the incentives, the facility upgrades, you know, image improvements, you know, a uh, 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 brand alignment, yeah. um, getting money. new car allocate, <laughs> allocations, you know, whatever it might be, right? Captive finance, pulling shenanigans, consumer facing incentives, dealer facing incentives. So, so, but you know, in the last couple of years, what's happened? We've had dealers print um, record profitability through COVID. I mean, front end grosses, back end grosses have been like off the charts. And, you know, no longer are we worried about dealers losing money on, on new car sales. At this point, what we've got is, um, you know, dealers making like record profitability. And, um, you know, the OEMs have been watching this and saying, oh, this is interesting. COVID has subjected us all to an interesting experiment, right? If you've got cars that all sell at or above MSRP, and we can dial down the incentive spend, and every car that we produce gets, gets, gets sold almost immediately, if not in advance, Suddenly it's like, oh, the whole supply chain makes more money. The OEMs make more money. The dealers make more money. The consumer obviously, you know, has issues that you always talk about. Now we're going to have a bunch of consumers that when they go into trade in three years or sell their car, they're going to be way, way underwater because they've overpaid for these cars when they first buy, bought them. But the, the OEMs have said, okay, well, what have we learned through COVID? Well, you know, let's, let's um, try to build an environment where every car sells at MSRP and consumers are much more conditioned for build to order because everyone's gonna make more profit. The, the other thing is you know, the OEMs, I would say in general, and maybe I'm generalizing here, um, are dissatisfied with the inconsistency of the consumer experience in the dealerships. Something you mentioned earlier, OEMs aren't happy that you know, dealers' reputations are, aren't very strong with consumers and consumers hate you know, having to spend four hours at the dealership buying the car. Um, the OEMs aren't happy with any of this and haven't been for some time and they're like, oh, Interesting. Well, what if we owned more of that consumer experience and we get the consumer to go to Hummer.com and you know put a down payment on a vehicle and wait for that vehicle to be produced? We could still have the dealer be the point of delivery for that car, but no longer will they be haggling with the dealer. All of the negotiation on price, the trade-in, and the F&I products will all get you know basically negotiated online in a pleasing experience. 
And then the dealer will be a point of distribution and will help service the cars afterwards. Is that realistic? And I say uh, that well, simply because of, you know, regulatory uh, laws, franchise laws and whatnot. Well, like, is that, this is what we're seeing. It, it, it sounds to me like a hybrid of some form of direct consumer. And I know it's not fully direct consumer, but like how realistic is that? Great, great observation. So overseas, they're moving much more aggressive. Automakers are moving much more aggressively. You saw Stellantis, for example, tear up the franchise agreements with 15,000 dealers last June over in Europe and replace them with an agent agreement where the OEM in that case, the automaker is going to take control of inventory and marketing to the consumer. The dealer no longer has the inventory risk and the, 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 the dealer no longer has to advertise to the consumer. They simply need to you know, fulfill the orders that the OEMs are going to generate. Here in the U.S., we have state franchise laws. And even Tesla has only you know, broken those down in 20 cases, where in 20 states they can sell directly without having franchises. So um, you know, th th that's an uphill battle for Tesla, but they continue to, 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 to nick away at that. But um, no, I, I think what we're seeing play out here is exactly what you said. It's a hybrid model where the OEMs will introduce new cars like, like the Hummer. Volkswagen is looking at reintroducing the Scout brand. They will sell direct. And, and whether or not the Volkswagen dealerships play some role in that, we don't know yet. But um, what you're seeing is this like experimentation around the edges with the franchise model here. Uh, but um, you know, I think that we could all agree, or, or from a dealer and OEM standpoint, we could all agree that selling every car at MSRP and not negotiating is really healthy for profitability, not so good for consumers. But then you would have to believe that we will not get back to where we were pre-COVID with OEMs in general overproducing cars and then stuffing the channel and then inventory backing up on dealers' lots and then incentives coming in over the top to give both dealers and consumers the incentive of buying these cars where there isn't enough demand for supply. Mm -hmm. And when you say stuffing the channel, right? So when that car, when that car hits the lot, Explain to us, like, does the manufacturer book that profit as soon as that car hits the lot? Or nope. is it, or go ahead. Yeah. So this is exactly right. So this is one of the big changes that I think will break the back of any illusions that the OEMs have around the agency model, which is like, who takes the inventory risk? Because the beautiful thing for the, the manufacturers today um, and up until now has been, you know, there's no, there's no finished goods on their balance sheet. At the end of the production line, that car is sold wholesale to that dealer and it's being shipped to that dealer. And that dealer takes all the inventory risk, all the inventory risk. So with the, with the um, agency model and what's being contemplated overseas is the automakers will actually take the inventory risk. So now those, that inventory is going to sit on their, on their balance sheet. And the first quarter where there's going to be a car that's built, that's a dud. If you remember back, the, the example I always use is the Pontiac Aztec. If you remember the Pontiac mm, Aztec, there will, there will be the equivalent <laughs> of Pontiac Aztecs built in, in new, this new EV world we're entering as we overproduce EVs according to demand. And I think that what's going to happen is um, the OEMs are going to be glad, glad that they're continuing to wholesale these cars to dealers and they aren't taking the inventory risk. Because can, can you imagine this over in Europe when Stellantis, just to, sorry to call out Stellantis, but they've been pretty vocal about this you know, has some EV they build that they've got to take a billion dollar write-off some quarter, the Wall Street analysts are going to skewer them. And, so and they may suddenly lose appetite, lose religion around the agency model when they realize the, 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 the negatives, the negative ramifications of potentially holding inventory on their balance sheet, where you've got like massive losses because the cars depreciate 
um, mm -hmm. so dramatically. So cases. you mentioned EVs. I get asked about EVs all the time. It's super, super hot topic, especially on, on the internet and the Twitterverse. Where, where, and, and specifically, you just mentioned overproduction. Do you think we're, we're kind of going too headstrong into the EV segment relative to demand? How do you see this playing out? Yes. Why? Do you want me to elaborate? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, so yes. So, so I, I think yes. I mean, if you look at automotive news, they said recently that there will be 150 new EV models over the next two years. We're seeing dramatic, aggressive stimulation from the U.S. government to try to get people to buy these things. And at the end of the day, I think that um, there just isn't going to be the demand maybe that a lot of people are forecasting. Not that there isn't demand. I think for certain use cases, EVs are awesome, right? But I mean, for, for many use cases uh, across the US, US is a vast area. You, know, you see one in five chargers aren't working right now, according to JD Power. So even if we push all these EV and incent all these EV chargers, um, if they aren't working and the, the handoff between the car and the EV uh, charger doesn't work effectively well, then we're gonna have like, massive problems i think with convincing consumers to buy these things so you so think that so just to understand you think that it's going to be a problem because like how do you reconcile tesla just had you know a great quarter i think they gained around two percent market share or so better than any other manufacturer of course ev so how do you reconcile that and and thinking that you know maybe we're overproducing or is this just a problem that we're just not there yet because evs in, as whole are still less than 10 percent of the car economy at the moment yeah, so I'm, I suspect that we'll top out at around 25 to 30%. I, I, there's no magic to that, but I think that to, to me, that's like the natural demand. You talk to people and, you know, or you, you, see, you see data that shows people like they're buying EVs as a second vehicle in, 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 in a household. That makes a lot of sense. Or I'm in a dense urban area, right, where I can either ensure that I've got charging at home or charging somewhere at work or wherever it might be. So I've got I've got charging that I can feel confident is, is going to work when I get there and be available. But I think that um you know there are a whole bunch of use cases you know pickup trucks that need for, for commercial purposes and towing capacity. Don't know if they're going to be able to figure that out right in terms of like the, the, the degradation of range. People who commute long distances and have serious range anxiety. Um how how are we how are we going to address some some of these use cases across the U.S. So and then just just gen general you know. People are pushing back. You see this; it's, it's become a very politicized topic. They're, you know, um, largely around, you know, um, um, the, the way people vote. And, and you see that, you know, I think there's people who are going to be thinking this is a conspiracy theory, and you know, the, the U.S. government shouldn't be pushing so much of an incentive on EVs. And I think that, you know, that w where the dust will settle on all this, I think we won't even get to 50% of EVs, and the, the, the government will spend a lot of money stimulating demand. And then, you know, when the incentives run out, the truth will be told in terms of what actual natural demand is. And I don't think that in this country, in the U.S., where you and I live, I, I don't think that any time, you know, while we're alive, the U.S. government's going to ban ICE cars. I could be wrong. They could ban ICE cars. But I just don't th think that that's going to happen in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think that's stupid as well. I, I think there just needs to be a healthy balance. I, I've mentioned multiple times, I've been, been very vocal about, you know, these proclamations of going all EV or you know, or one direction or the other. I just think that, you know, like there needs to be a healthy balance and let the free market decide over a decade what, you know, what the market should look like. Uh, but I, I do agree with you there that like banning ice, you know, banning this, banning that, only EV, only high, like there should just need to be a healthy balance. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just can't do a complete transition. I, you know, I think about it from a business perspective, right? 
you want to try a new product, you want to expand to somewhere, you're going to do a pilot, right? You're not just going to go and put all your eggs in one basket and, you know, burn the bridges. No, you're going to run a pilot. You're going to test. You're going to see how is it performing. And so I think about it, you know, a lot more or I systematically that way, as opposed to this like hard cutoff. But I also realized that, you know, I'm not in those boardrooms. I know a lot of it is just politics and, you know, sort of signaling and whatnot. So I know there's kind of multiple angles to this. Yeah, you and I are aligned on that for sure. So let's talk about some juicy stuff on EVs because this is where I'm interested uh, to kind of pick your brain or, or, or get inside your thoughts. Where do you see the opportunities in the EV space? You know, like what's the picks and shovels, right? You've made some investments, which ha- feel free to, you know, if you want to mention any here, uh, go for it. But you've made some investments in this space. Clearly, if we're at, you know, sub 10% today market share for EVs, and you said yourself that you think it's going to peak around 25% or so, and that's just your guesstimate. But nonetheless, that still, you know, accounts for more than doubling the current market share. So there's still room for growth. And so, you know, what are the picks and shovels here, right? Where is the value creation or where, who's going to capture the value in this kind of transition to some, you know, some percentage of market share of EVs? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So almost, almost anywhere you look, you can find opportunities. I mean, there's huge strides being made in batter, battery chemistry. One, one is to, you know, get more density per kilogram. And that'll allow us to increase the range. But equally important is like charging speed. And there are companies out there that are doing building prototypes that allow you to charge a vehicle in like five minutes. So clearly, like if we can build lighter batteries that have more more power, you can think of you know um, aircraft use cases for short hop aircraft commercial. Um, you can think of um, sort of like cars that will weigh less and run for for longer um, uh, r- r- range per, per charge. Um, if we can get to charging at five minutes of charge, it'll be miraculous, right? We wouldn't have to really worry about as in, in installing as many chargers because the chargers can charge the car so quickly, you can just cycle the cars through really quickly. So that's battery chemistry. I think charging infrastructure is very interesting. You know, it's, it, it's, it was amazing to me to see that JD Power study with one in five chargers it just doesn't work today. So it's driving Mercedes and Hyundai, you know, to think through like, should we build our own proprietary, which is exactly the wrong thing to do, obviously for many reasons, but their own proprietary charging network where, you know, Mercedes chargers will only work with Mercedes. Tesla chargers will only work with Tesla. So, you know, we're going to have this proliferation of proprietary charging stations all over the U.S. Doesn't make any sense. But, you know, um, because it's just really hard to build a charger and then be agnostic to 30 different brands with different charging heads, you know, uh, the plug configuration, et cetera. We have separate gas stations based on brand. Yeah, exactly right. Imagine that. Imagine that. I got to go to my Mercedes gas station yeah. instead of my BMW gas station. So that doesn't make any sense. But you know, so- someone's got to figure that out. And that's part hardware and that's part so- software. And then there- there's companies like we invested in a company called Recurrent, which I hope becomes the quote unquote Carfax of you know e- e- for used EVs. Like if you're a dealer and you're bidding at the auction for an EV, how on earth do you know what life is left in that vehicle? And then how do you turn around and retail that to a consumer and give them confidence that there's remaining life left on that battery, right? So, I mean, someone's got to be able to analyze these batteries for the used use cases, of which there are many, and propose that. And then the last one I'll mention is, you know, charging infrastructure is very interesting. So we're about to invest in this company out of the UK that effectively has what I would call like a daisy chain for a fast charger. So right now, it's amazing to me. I hadn't thought about this before I talked to these guys. I met these guys a couple of months ago. But, you know, everyone is building a fast charger and it's associated with one or two parking spaces. Well, we th- this company allows us to abstract away from that and plug this um, tentacle-like device, one end into the fast charger 
And then you can plug in up to 20 cars out of one fast charger. And then you, the way electricity works, I've been told, you can't charge all the cars simultaneously. You got to charge them in sequence. But then you, you can dictate in which sequence you like to charge the cars. So, you know, you're leaving earlier in the morning, your car gets charged first. You're paying more uh, if, for electricity rates, you get charged first. So you can build all of those like premium, um, premium you know, charging, the, the, the hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? Of the, whatever rules you want for a fleet, for a condo, for a dealership who's got, you know, 20 cars getting picked up in the morning out of their service bay, you plug all 20 cars in and suddenly the, the sequence uh, of cars that get charged will be you know, dictated by the dealership and the software that runs on top of the hardware. So there, there are plenty of things here. Um, you, you know, it's funny, we joke internally, we could literally launch just an EV fund right now and we wouldn't have any, any lack of companies that we're seeing um, and just have a thesis only around electrification. Hardware, and software, both? Everything, battery technologies, you, you name it. I mean, there's all kinds of efficiencies that can be found. I mean, even, even Tesla's talking about, you know, building different types of magnets in their batteries um, and not using as many rare earth minerals, right? So I think there's all kinds of technology that has to still be found and discovered. And <laughs> I think you, could, you can definitely, you could, I haven't seen any yet, but I, I'm certain there will be EV only funds out there hunting for these kinds of solutions. Yeah, well, you know, I've started to see some EV only dealerships start to pop up. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's it's good. I mean, there's gonna be enough demand. You can definitely carve out a niche. And the funny thing is like, I think that a lot of the dealers do lament around, franchise dealers that I talk to around, hey, is my salesperson gonna be prepared to have these kinds of conversations? Or your mechanic, your technician. Well, your mechanic as well. But I mean, you know, so what kind of charger do I need? Should I buy this charger or this charger? And is it gonna work? And is my house equipped properly? You know, these kinds of questions, they're gonna ask their salesperson. And you know, the average salesperson, you tell me, I don't think is gonna be ready to be able to answer those kinds of questions. So having having a dealership and salespeople and service people, to your point, who have deep expertise around electrification probably is gonna be a nice differentiator. You mentioned Recurrent uh, on that note, right? You mentioned Recurrent as one of the companies you invested in on the software side. We spoke about hardware. What, what other opportunities do you see in software that's just going to, you know, really make the used EV experience, uh, used EV purchasing experience for, for consumers easy, better, and for dealers overall, help them facilitate more of those sales? What do you see there? Anything else? Yes. So I, I think, yeah, unpacking, well, there's two things, right? So unpacking um, this spider web of, this convoluted spider web of EV incentives where, you know, my salary, the, the, the car price, uh, what percentage of that battery was built on American soil and sourced on American soil? What percent of that car was built on American soil? Um, is going to be too much for people to figure out and, and for dealers to figure out too. You know, does the dealer get reimbursed or the dealer get paid or the consumer get direct paid on these incentives? So there's going to be a whole bunch of incentives out there. And this lattice work of incentives is going to be really hard to get through. So I, I as a consumer, are going to need to be able to go to a website somewhere and say, look, here's me. Here's how much money I make. Here's the car I'm interested in. Here's where I live. And then have, have the magic eight ball kind of shake and then out comes spits my incentive. And the dealers are going to have to ha be able to hit that database. The consumers are going to be able to hit that database. So I encourage folks to be, you know, entrepreneurs to be to working on that problem because that problem has got to be like here today and it's going to be even more pre prevalent in the future. Um, and I think that, um, I think the other is probably, you know, charging, uh, well, I, I would say that then you think about the search experiment experience. So I'm going to go to a website and I'm going to try to search for a car. 
and I'm going to want to, I'm going to want on a used car or a new car, want to be able to search by range and remaining range on that vehicle, on a used vehicle. What's the battery condition? So there's a whole new cluster of like filters that someone's going to have to be able to access on these third party sites and dealer sites to be able to accommodate the unique EV properties. And then um, even sort of like you know, ch ch chargers and which charging network will accommodate that EV. And then I think there's a, the whole layer of software that has to sit on top of um, these, these chargers themselves. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason that we've got 20% of chargers not working is because we've got you know, software incompatibilities and we, the, the software layer itself needs to get smarter. And there, there are companies that still need to be built in that area. Yeah. And I think also dealers, I mean, you mentioned consumers buying EVs, but you know, I see it with dealers as well, like, you know, unsure, you know, should I buy this EV versus this one and this Tesla versus that one? And is this one in better condition? So I think having better informed dealers that are able to source better quality cars, and then of course, sell those to consumers is going to be another opportunity as well. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine poor dealer walking into an auction lane and seeing a Tesla and not really having bought Teslas in the past. How do you buy your first Tesla and not make a mistake? It's not easy, especially, you know, when when the price drops happened and then, um, you know, the, the Tesla new car price, price drops happened and then that impacted used cars. So, you know, some some dealers did take a bath um, and, you know, that was temporary. It doesn't mean that you should never buy or sell an EV again, but it was definitely added a layer of risk that, you know, made dealers think twice, wait, whoa, like suddenly there's price risk. And it wasn't only Tesla. Um, it was, you know, then Ford dropped the price of their Mustang or their, their Mach-E. And so there's suddenly the OEMs, you know, there's all these price fluctuations happening and it just adds another layer of risk to the business. So going a bit more big picture, we talked, you know, we spoke about EVs and some opportunities, but what are general trends that you're focused on investing in right now? Like what's the hottest areas or maybe not necessarily hottest, but what's the most important areas that you're focused on uh, when you're looking for companies and opportunities right now? So I, I'd love to run this by your, 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 your viewers and see, you know, if you get some feedback and anybody who wants to reach out to me directly can. So I, I wrote about this you know, last week in my, my Intel report for, for April, but let, let me run this by you because you, you, you and I haven't had a chance to catch up on this yet. But, you know, talking to, to dealer owners, I've, I've been struck with this use case. So um, features on demand. Right, so we're we're gonna enter this era where the the vehicle features themselves are gonna get unbundled, and then you're gonna be allowed as a consumer to make the choice: Do you want to pay for full self-driving upfront or by the month? Do you want to pay for you know the the cold weather package upfront or by the month? And you you could see a world a couple of years from now where many of the features on the car that were built into the car on the production line are only unlocked by consumers who want to pay per month. So now, you know, I'm paying $99 a month for a bundle of features um, that I didn't activate when I first bought the car. But as I made more money or got a bonus, I decided, oh, let me get rear heated seats, whatever Does it is. Does that happen, right? Steve? And I don't want to cut you off because this is, you're making a great point. But like, do, no, do fire we, away, fire away. No, I'm saying, do we actually get there to the point where we, you know, I forget how the term for this, like subscription, whatever of everything, like, that, do we really get to that point? We're already there. I mean, look at your credit card and like, you're paying for Disney Plus and Netflix and Hulu and whatever else. I mean, we're already getting there. And like every, every, I mean, are you an Amazon Prime customer? Yes, you are. Of course. Right. Of course you are because everybody is in America. So I think we're, we're already there. And yeah, people have this visceral reaction. But the truth is, I only want to pay. And young, younger people than me will only want to pay for heated seats during the months they use them. Wow. And if I don't use them, don't, don't charge me, right? So, I mean, if there are features that I use a lot, charge me. And if 
there are features I choose not to use, then don't charge me. Mm -hmm. I think that, that's good, right? That's price discrimination in a good way. Um, but anyway, so let me run this by you. So you're in the auction bidding on a car and you're looking at a, you know, a three-year-old BMW 3 Series and you drive it around the auction lot and you're like, oh, this is a pretty good car. It's got like, obviously got some extra horsepower and, you know, it looks like the battery range is like 500 miles or whatever. But what you don't know is that when you get that car back to your lot, which features that you are experiencing right now are going to be deactivated because the owner is about to cancel them on their credit card. So when you're taking in a car, an appraisal, off-brand car, that your, your, your used car manager isn't familiar with, and he or she is test, you know, doing a quick drive and appraisal, they're, like, they're not going to know what that car is going to look and, and act like tomorrow. Probably it's going to look much more like a base model than it does today, the souped up model. So how on earth is an appraiser not going to get their fingers burned and, and know which services are being paid for by the month? So think about the, the use cases here. The consumer is going to want some guarantee that all, all the features are, that who's trading it in, all the features they're paying for are going to get canceled. And then they, they want a certificate certifying all my features have been canceled. I'm no, no longer going to be charged. Your, your appraiser is going to want to know which features are going to get turned off tomorrow because I'm not, I'm not paying you for features that are going to be um, turned off tomorrow. And then, you know, a week later when that used car manager is demoing that car to somebody, how are they going to be able to toggle on and toggle off the features to showcase what they might pay? And will the OEM be willing to pay your dealership, that's an off-brand dealership, something if at the point of sale you convince that consumer to buy some of these subscription services. And by the way, what's the window sticker gonna look like in the future? Because I think it's gonna look like there's gonna be a bunch of areas that are grayed out that, may, that have been built into the car that may or may not ever get activated. So how are you gonna sell that as a used car five years later if you're an independent dealer? How on earth, are, and you don't have access to the window sticker data, you're, there, there are gonna be latent features in the car that you don't even know about. I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> You're so all, all I would encourage is like, you know, there are, there, I just described multiple businesses that need to get built. So entrepreneurs should be thinking about these things and say, oh, okay, cool. I can build that central clearinghouse repository of all features, wow. or I'm going to be able to build the data around um, window stickers in the future, or I'm going to be able to protect that appraiser from making a mistake and appraising a subscription product that's about to be turned off tomorrow. Or I, I want to be the company that helps the consumer have confidence that when they trade that car in within 24 hours, all of their subscriptions get canceled, um, they get reimbursed for the stub for the remainder of that month, and they get a certificate that they, they won't be charged in the future. So there, there's, there are businesses to be had, but it, we're such, such a bleeding edge early stage, it's hard for me even to like obviously articulate what those businesses are going to look like. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think of something that's, you know, analogous to this and, you know, probably a bad example, but this sounds to me like, you know, building Coinbase in like 2010 or whenever it started. <laughs> right. It's like, what the hell is a cryptocurrency, let alone Bitcoin? Like you're building a, a what, like a marketplace for this? Like it makes zero sense. This, it just sounds to me based on what you just said that, that this, you know, peaks or so in a decade or that's when it, you know, gets... Uh, you know, really mainstream, but because it's, it's, you're right. I never, ha I haven't thought about this and it sounds like it's going to be a really big opportunity. 
Yeah, I think a big problem if it isn't solved, but a big opportunity for the entrepreneur that gets the timing right. Wow. And then, so and what other trends? I mean, this is obviously a great one. Anything else that you're focused on? Obviously, this is just one vertical. Anything else specific? Well, I mean, just, just in general, over-the-air updates, right? I think that, you know, um, we're seeing um, some consultants believe that a lot of a dealer's service work, the warranty and recall work is going to go away because of software pushes to cars in, in lieu of taking the car in and getting that warranty or recall work at dealerships. So we're trying to figure out if there's an opportunity for us to participate in over-the-air updates. I think that um, servicing vehicles in general, um, you know, are, are there efficiencies to be had there by making your technicians and your service writers much more efficient? We invested in a company called WarCloud, which um, automates the warranty processing back to the manufacturers on behalf of franchise dealers. And that company's doing very, very well. But I think this whole area of, you know, um, uh, robotic process automation. You, you see all this buzz around AI right now, but I mean, the, the, the practical implications of that is, you know, de dealers run pretty heavy with personnel. And I, I think a lot, a lot of those personnel do repetitive tasks. And anywhere there are repetitive tasks that a, a computer can emulate, I think that there'll be opportunities to like basically free those people up and or eliminate the positions outright. And I think, you know, well, and, and also future, just to add to that, that, you know, as a dealer, like technicians, it's some of the hardest positions or toughest positions to hire because there's a, there's been a shortage of them for, for many years. And, it's, you know, you really can't find them in many cases. You know, you increase comp, you offer, you know, bonuses and whatnot, sign on bonuses. It's still super tough because everyone's doing it. So I think that's, a, you know, a net positive just to, you know, relieve some of that stress on the on the system. Yeah, I mean, I, I was at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show uh, in Vegas in January, and, and one of the booths showed um, a simulation of a, a technician working on a brake rotor uh, repair and, um, you know, had sort of like the equivalent of Google Glass. I don't know which technology. I should know which technology it was. But, you know, being able to see visually you know, the augmented reality of like what the ideal repair was versus like the repair that I'm, I'm currently using and where, where to put the brake pads, et cetera. So I think to your point, I mean, if you're going to have technicians and make that investment, give them the tools to make them much more efficient. And um, so, so one area we're interested in is the, the whole, um, you know, automation, you know, augmentation and, 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 and making much, uh, the employees much more efficient and or replacing them. But, you know, are there other technologies like the one I just described to, to make your existing employees much more efficient and productive? Mm-hmm. Steve, you wrote a great book, which I highly encourage, um, you know, anyone, everyone here to read. It's, it's called The Future of Automotive Retail. Super interesting, you know, hearing your perspective on what retail will look like. And I like how you wrote it in a way where it's almost like a story. You know, you can tell how kind of the car business has evolved. But, you know, just to give the viewers a taste of, you know, this, this book and specifically what that future looks like, because everyone is wondering, you know, car dealership guy, like, when is when is car buying going to really change or be this or that? You know what's going to change, and I know we briefly touched on this early in the conversation, but can you just give us like a you know a, a just a preview or a paragraph just so that people understand? You know, five to ten years away, what does that experience look like between consumers and dealers? How how has that experience evolved, and how is it different from today? Yeah, so I think you can look back 20 years, 25 years to the beginning of the internet, right? I mean, there was no um, uh, information. There was a lot of information asymmetry. There wasn't a lot of transparency for consumers. So um, the uh, the horses have left the barn, as they say, and there will be more transparency. So whereas on the front end of the car deal, the, the, the price of the vehicle, there's been a lot of transparency. Now, now I can get invoice price. Now I, I know what the competitive set is. 
I know, you know, the, 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 the competition in terms of the car that I'm looking for. I think there'll be a lot more transparency. Dealers might not like to hear this, but a lot more transparency on the back end of the car deal. You know, the, the financing and, you know, being able to understand exactly if I qualify, what my rate should be, if you're overcharging me, et cetera. And also um, transparency around the insurance products where there has not been, it's very, very opaque. Part of that transparency will come through um, just the internet and being able to kind of cross shop. Some of that transparency will come through FTC regulations, right? Um, that, that have already been signaled, but you know, really haven't come to bear yet. So I think that the, the transparency will be good for the consumer, not so good for the dealer. Um, as, so I think the fast forwarding five or 10 years, it'll be much more transparent. The consumer will be more in control of a lot of these areas of the car deal, being able to configure it. But as I said earlier, where we started the conversation, I still believe the vast majority of transactions will take place at the dealership, lar largely because it's a, it's, a, it's a very large purchase. And there still is going to be a lot of uncertainty unless you're like a super prime customer and you're willing to pay with no negotiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, I, I'm very pragmatic when it comes to this topic and people ask me like, hey, um, you know, dealers are going to disappear or this. And I say, well, dealers are going to change, right? Like, you know, yes, a new car might not be sold at a dealership. It might become the, the dealership might just be the fulfillment center, right? But then there's the service side of the business. And, and so I always say to people that ask me, especially on Twitter, I say dealers are not going to go away but certain aspects of the dealership model will, and others will just evolve. And, um, and I think that's where, you know, for like the car manufacturers, the dealer is so important, right? It's, it's the servicing, of course, there's a used car business, parts distribution and whatnot. So there's just, it, that's the thing about the dealership model in general, that you have so many different um, revenue streams and in profit centers that it's, it's a very diversified business. And, you know, the used car business is a bit less so where you just really have one main profit center, which is your used car sale. Of course, that's made up of selling a car and FNI products and, and other things, but it's still, you know, pretty distinct models. So to move forward from there, um, a fun one is just autonomous vehicles. You know, it's not a topic that I get asked too much about lately or too often. I used to get asked about it a lot more. Uh, but is this going to happen? Will like when is it going to happen? Are we talking like five years, twenty years, ever not happening? What's your what's your take on AVs? Yeah, it's funny. There's a slide that I show from back in 2013. I think it's Morgan Stanley had said that by this point, half the cars on the road would be like fully autonomous, and it would decimate you know new car sales because the cars would be much more efficient. There was this stat I remember people talked about the average cars only being used four percent of the time. If we could increase that that utilization rate, then there we we have way too many cars, right? Uh, for for the mileage driven. So um, uh, you know, in every every Uber, I I believe Uber's business was built on the premise that they thought that autonomy was coming, and the only way to squeeze positive unit economics out of Uber were to have like the remove the drivers entirely. Um, so, but that's another topic entirely. I, I think that um my my short answer would be for human cargo, moving humans around. Um, level five full autonomy is never going to happen. Wow, that's bold. <laughs> I think that um, I think uh, for for moving non-human cargo around, we're already seeing evidence of it, right? Whether it's Amazon flying drones and dropping off packages, whether what they call on on roads platooning, you're going to see this soon, which is going to freak people out. But you know, if you, if you remember the, the the Logan movie, the Wolverine movie in the future, you're going to have um, basically a, a pl pl platoon of uh, semis 
In the first cab, you'll have a human driving, but every subsequent cab and trailer, there won't be humans driving. They're just gonna follow the rules, follow directly behind that first uh, uh, semi on the road. And these things will be doing long haul trucking across the US. It's gonna alleviate any challenges we have with you know, labor shortages around long haul trucking. And uh, it'll be eerie to see these things because you'll see five or 10 trucks all lined up and the only human will be in the first cab of the first truck. So we're seeing that. But the reason I say that about human cargo is the fact that um, it's just challenging, right? You think about how these cars work. And if you try to drive a car with a, a lot of these ADAS systems in a snowstorm or a thunderstorm today, they turn them off. They'll warn you and then they'll turn them off because you know they rely on lenses, right? There's cameras, LIDAR or radar. And those lenses have to be clean and clear. And you know, I grew up in Toronto and at this time of year, if you go to Toronto, all the cars are caked with salt. And those lenses aren't working. So if you're relying on clean lenses to interact with the environment, to compare to a reference map of other cars that have seen the surroundings, it's not gonna work. So I think this utopian, oh, in every single climate, in every single condition, we're gonna have full autonomy isn't gonna work. There's a reason why you know, these full autonomous tests from Waymo and Cruise are, and, and even Tesla are typically in you know, Phoenix or Sunnyvale because the weather is perfect every day there. You start bringing it up to you know, um, different cities in the Northeast and it's just not gonna, not gonna work. So I think that it, we won't have full autonomy in my lifetime. They might call it full autonomy like Tesla does, but in a lot of conditions, it'll warn the driver and then turn off. So, I mean, it, it doesn't reconcile with removing the steering wheel and pedals from these cars because if the car is going to like pull over in a thunderstorm or, in, or a snowstorm and hand back control, it can't hand back control if there's no steering wheel. Mm. Wow. I mean, I think that initially I was going to say that, is this just like an American thing because of regu regulations? Because um, we know that the technology is, you know, at least a portion of it is there already. Um, but so you think that this is just, global, right? You, you don't think that anywhere else we're going to see full autonomy? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. There, there'll be experiments done, right? Where the governments can reach down and, and push push on this. And we'll, we'll see how that works out. I still think that even despite that, I think everybody who comments that it's still safer than having humans, I'm always amazed that, you know, two in the morning, I'll, I'll get into a city. I hop into an Uber with a guy that could be drunk, could be drugged up. And I'm relying on this 23 year old kid who I don't know, I put my life in their hands. What a crazy, not gonna... what a crazy value proposition. When you think about Uber launching and how successful they've been and how we all use it. And then you, you think of exactly what you just said, that a stranger quote unquote is going to pick you up. In a all, all I'm counting on, I think of this often when I'm in these Ubers around, around the country, I think I'm counting that they value their life as much as I value my life because if they don't, we're not aligned and I shouldn't be in this Uber. <laughs> I ordered DoorDash the other day and the driver was like extremely communicative. Like, hey, I'm on the way there. <laughs> hey, I'm waiting to pick it up. And it's funny because like, I'm so not used to it. I, I'm starting to get suspicious. I'm like, is he, is something happening? Why, why is he telling me every single step he's making? Is he like, you know, fucking with my food? <laughs> but end up being fine nonetheless. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a crazy, you know, it's a, just- did, did you ever suspect it might be AI and not even a person? Man, now with ChatGPT, they're going to hook it up to DoorDash. You're going to, yeah, you're going to get it delivered to you with a drone. It's going to be crazy, crazy world. <laughs> All right, so we're just about to wrap up. I want to ask you a fun question. What have you changed your mind on in the past five years? 
Wow, that's a good that's a good question. I think um, well, one, my answer around autonomy would have been very different five years ago. Uh, I think five years ago I, I might have been naive enough to think that maybe you know dealers were going to face their demise, which I don't think is the case at all. Um, and you know, five years ago, while there wasn't this you know huge stimulation to try to incent consumers to buy EVs, I, I might have been more of a believer around we were going to get get to a hundred percent EV. But you know, at this point, dealers aren't going anywhere. I don't think that we're going to get to 100% EVs, not in my lifetime. And um, you know, we, we, like I said earlier, I, I don't think that the use case for human autonomy at level five is ever going to happen. Fascinating. And Steve, can you tell the audience, for anyone that wants to learn more about you, Automotive Ventures, and you know, for everyone that's wondering, also full disclosure, I am a proud and tiny LP in Automotive Ventures. So you know, I have, I have some skin in the game. Uh, but for anyone that's interested, can you please tell them uh, where, where they can learn more about the, you or the company? That's great. And we appreciate your, your small, small but very strong investment <laughs> in the thought partnership, the relationship. So we, um, you, know, you, can, you can find us at automotiveventures.com. We are an early stage VC investing in both mobility and automotive technologies around the world. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to have a conversation at any time. Uh, you can subscribe to our weekly Intel report that goes out Monday mornings at 7 a.m. Um, that I write over the weekend and uh, happy to get your comments on that. That's free. And uh, we also have an investment club. Uh, so when we do find deals, we offer those up to our investment club. There's no, um, there's no um, cost to uh, join. So you can join and start seeing our, 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 our deal flow immediately and then invest in any of our companies with checks as small as $5,000. So happy to have anybody join our investment club as well. Steve, this was awesome. We're going to have to do this more often in the future as the, the trends change, evolve, you make some more investments. I think everyone's going to be super interested to hear what's going on. So thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing for the industry and your, your following is a testament to you're fulfilling a really big need out there. So I appreciate everything you do and the commitment you have to the industry. I appreciate that, man. Thank you.